If you haven't done so already, go ahead and open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to continue in our study of 1 Peter that we began last October. We're just kind of slowly moving through it. And this evening, we're going to look at chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. And as we consider the theme for this evening, there's a word that appears multiple times. The word is fear. And I'm not going to talk just about fear this evening, but it's an appropriate way to segue into the message by talking about the different types of fears that people have, different phobias that exist. Now, are you willing to raise your hand if you have, I'm not asking what kind of phobia, but you say, yeah, I have a phobia of something. All right. Okay. Raise your hand if you have some kind of phobia. Okay. A few of you have a phobia. Okay, good. Well, there are some, I guess I would say reasonable phobias like snakes and spiders and heights, uh, the things I'm afraid of. Uh, Those are reasonable, appropriate. But there are some unreasonable phobias. For example, there's a phobia that's called eulethyrophobia. Eulethyrophobia. That is fear of freedom. So if you have fear of freedom, William Wallace has something to tell you. Okay? He was not a fan of those people who just have a problem with fear. Here's the condition. Fear of freedom, that is. Here's the condition. You prefer when other people tell you what to do. You're just a naturally follower. You'd rather have somebody tell you how to live your life than for you to have any freedom whatsoever over your life. And I assume these are legit because I found them on the internet. Of course, they're true, right? Second one is plutophobia. Plutophobia, and that's fear of money, which is crazy. There's no way somebody has fear of money. If they do, they should talk to Tevia from Fiddler in the Roof. Remember what he said at the very beginning? People say that riches are a curse, and I wish God would curse me with them so I would never recover. That's exactly what fear of money, that's the solution to fear of money, right? Getting rich, and some people do this apparently, that they actually begin to undermine their own careers in order not to get more money, not to make more money, which is, yes, thank you for that response with your facial expression. It is crazy. I agree with you. How about this one? Ciderophobia. Ciderophobia. And that is fear of stars. I feel sad for this person. You've never wished upon a star. You've never looked for a shooting star. You've never slept under stars. Never gone stargazing. But apparently some people are really afraid of stars because it's a little too dark for them. How about this one? A blue... Ablutophobia. Ablutophobia. I hope nobody here has this one. Okay? It's fear of washing yourself. It's fear of taking showers. Okay? I really hope, though sometimes it may seem like somebody does have that fear in here by just walking next to them, but let's hope it's not a clinical condition. They're afraid to wash. And this is what the experts say. This leads to an unpleasant body odor. Duh. And then what follows is social isolation. (laughs) Of course. Of course. Who would want to hang out with a smelly person? All right. Next one is chatophobia. Chatophobia. And that is, what do you think that is? No, it's not fear of Fabio. Come on. (laughs) It's fear of hair. You're afraid of hair. You don't want to comb your own hair. You don't get haircuts. You're annoyed by hair on other people. You don't want people touching your hair. That's normal. Don't let other people touch your hair. But uh, if you're really paranoid, you have chetophobia. This one, calignophobia. Calignophobia, fear of beautiful women. I'm not putting up a picture for you guys for this one. There's no way. (laughs) Just look around, and some of you might have fear of beautiful women. Here's what happens if you have fear of beautiful women. You get nervous. You feel intimidated. You have pain in your chest. Your heart begins to ache. Your extremities go numb. I just think you're in love if that's all that's happening. That's all that is. All right. Arophobia. Arophobia is fear of gold. No way any girl has this fear. 
No way. But here's what happens to people who have fear of gold. They have panic attacks. They start sweating. They have an irregular heartbeat and every other anxious expression of it. This is a good one. Nomophobia. Nomophobia. That is a fear of being apart from your cell phone. You have such a relationship with your phone that whenever you're separated, even during sleep, you begin to panic. Anxiety kicks in. So if you see low battery, you begin to freak out. Or if you've left it somewhere, you can't remember where it is, you begin to freak out. Or if you're out of service, you begin to freak out. Um, I think some of us rejoice when we forget our cell phones at home, right? And then what follows? Panic (laughs) right after that, right? Yeah, we kind of are addicted to our phones. Okay, next one. Argophobia. Argophobia, guess what that is? Fear of work. Look at those men. Not working at all. Look at that guy in the box. Really, really enjoying himself. Yeah, fear of work. I think we all know some people like that who really have a problem working. Fear of manual labor, fear of work itself, fear of the work environment, fear of finding a job. I mean, just pile those things on. Everything. Fear of work. How about this one? Nostophobia. Nostophobia is fear of coming home. Now, how would you ever have fear if you have this for your house, right? I did Google the most expensive house in LA, and this is what came up. 250 mil. I think it's in Bel Air. So fear of coming home. Here's an example that they gave uh, online. Uh, It's when parents who are empty nesters all of a sudden find out that their kids are coming home and the parents begin to freak out and they don't want to go home because they enjoyed their freedom a little too much without the kids. How about this one? Phobophobia. Phobophobia is fear of having a phobia. Fear of having a fear. And so then basically everything is fair game. You have a fear of everything. Fear of all types of anxieties. This is one of my favorites. Hematophobia. Hematophobia, what do you think that is? Fear of blood. Fear of blood. That's Stephanie Blood, for all of you who don't know her last name. So if you have, if you have fear of blood, here's what happens. Just the thought of blood, Stephanie, or blood, literally, you become psychologically traumatized. You begin to get dizzy. You begin to faint, and you have a dry mouth. So fear of blood, and then... Confession time. Cynophobia. No, don't go, ah. We're talking about fears. Cynophobia. That's fear of dogs. You've heard all my uh, verbal assaults on all the dogs. Now, look at that vile creature, right? Come on. Vicious monster. Look at him. Here's the deal. Cynophobic people, they're actually afraid of the cutest dogs. So uh, I had to find the cutest dog online. I don't think it's cute at all, but cynophobia. There are some odd fears that exist. And if you had one of those, I'm so sorry. I wasn't making fun of you. But there are fears that exist, and some fears are legitimate. And if you think about your own life, you do have certain fears. And you organize your life in response to those fears. If you have a fear of flying, you refuse to fly even if it makes no sense. You'll sacrifice certain things to avoid your fear, right? You'll not go to Europe because you don't want to fly. You'll avoid certain places, certain pleasant places because of your fear. Fear is a part of the human condition. And when we look in our passage for this evening, Peter isn't trying to eliminate all fear. Rather, he takes the fear that exists in the human condition and he redirects it. He understands that we will always have fears in our lives. And certain things provoke us to fear more than others. But the question is, what is your fear directed to? Is it directed at the appropriate object? So follow along as I read for us 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, and just notice the emphasis on fear in this passage. 
Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and fear. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. Three times the word fear appears in our passage. In verse 14, do not fear there, literally fear. And then at the end of verse 15, we are to defend our hope with gentleness and fear. This passage falls into the greater section That's the second main section in this book. We've talked about this every so often just to kind of remind you how this book flows and how the argument flows. And so here we are in the second section of 1 Peter, that is chapter 2, verses 11 through chapter 4, verse 6. And the focus of this section is all about living your Christian life, living the good life in the secular community. The first section was all about your relationship to Christ. Now it's all about your relationship to unbelievers. How are you to interact with people who do not profess Christ, those who oppose Christ? And Peter, back in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2, says the way you begin your relationships with unbelievers is to make sure that your behavior is excellent. That there's nothing that exists in your life that people can accuse you of rightfully. And then the manifestation of this excellent behavior Started in verses 13 and went all the way to chapter 3, verse 12. And that is submission. You submit to the government. You submit to your employer. You submit in your marital relationship. And then you submit in all of your relationships. In other words, there's humility that is manifest in all the relationships in our lives. That's the first expression of living excellently in this life. The second expression is the focus of our paragraph this evening. And that is... How do you respond to people who are hostile to you because of your faith in Christ? How do you respond in that moment? When people insult you, revile you, mock you, perhaps even physically assault you. Perhaps they take your literature, the the, the little booklets that you pass out as part of evangelism, they take it and they rip it, they throw it away, they spit on it. How do you respond in the moment when you face opposition for the sake of righteousness? This isn't the first time that Peter has talked or will talk about persecution in this letter. Just listen how many times he refers to some kind of hostility from the secular world against the believer. Chapter 1, verse 6, verse 11, chapter 2, verse 12, 19, 20, 21, 23. Chapter 3, verse 8, verse 9, verse 14, verse 17, verse 18. Chapter 4, verse 1, twice. Verse 12, verse 13, verse 15, verse 19, and then chapter 5, verses 1, 9, and 10. He repeatedly comes back to the same theme. You will be persecuted. So how do you respond in those moments? And so he wants to give us an appropriate response for that moment when you may be treated unfairly because you're a Christian. And the first response that we ought to have is to count your blessings. Count your blessings. The natural response might be fear. It might be retaliation. We may want to say something back to get even. We may stew on the fact that somebody insulted us and now we need to get even. We know we're supposed to forgive, but we may, be able, we may continue to harbor over that issue in our minds for the rest of the day, week, or so on. But the first appropriate response to unjust treatment for your faith in Christ is count your blessings. And he says that back in verse 14. If you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. It seems ironic to to connect blessing with suffering, but Peter does so. 
And in doing so, he really goes back to Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. When Jesus begins his ministry, he begins his ministry as a preacher. Many of you who read the New Testament, you remember the Beatitudes. You remember the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed, 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 blessed. Eight times Jesus says, blessed are you. And then he follows with certain statements. Well, in verse 10 of Matthew chapter 5, he says this. Blessed are you who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Peter picks up this idea from Jesus who started his ministry by saying persecution is inevitable, but if it happens for the sake of my name, because of the gospel, you are blessed. He says it three times because you are now demonstrating that your life lines up with the previous heroes in the faith, that you're like the Old Testament saints. You're like the faithful men and women of God who were faithful to Christ and were persecuted. You are in that lineage. That's your heritage. And so you are blessed. Back in First Peter, in chapter 4, verse 14, this is what he says. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. So he repeats it all over again. But really, by doing so, he takes us back to the beginning of the letter in chapter 1, verse 3, when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then he says, you will get an inheritance that's imperishable and defiled, unfading, that's protected for you. That's the blessing. So the blessing that he's referring to is a futuristic blessing. You will receive a reward for your faithfulness for Christ. But this is only done in the context of an appropriate response in that moment. Go back to our passage. In chapter 3, verse 13, he says this, Who's there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Then, if you skip down just a little bit, in verse 16, he says, Keep a good conscience. Then, you look at the end of verse 16, you're being reviled for your good behavior. And then at the end of verse 17, you're doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. Four times uses the word good in this letter. In other words, the parameters of our response to persecution is always do what's right. We're doing good. Then there's a reward that's awaiting you. And Peter immediately says, you as a Christian should be characterized by zeal for doing what is right. He uses a word, zealous. It's actually the word that means zealot. And if you know any kind of ancient history in the first century, you'd, you'd remember that in ancient Palestine, first century Israel, when the Romans were overseeing Israel, there were various Jewish sects. Some people have said there's about two dozen Jewish sects that existed. Well, one of those sects were the zealots. And they were so devout to God's law, they were so committed to God's law that they became assassins. And the kind of the subgroup of that became the Sikari, which is the word for assassin. So these zealots were so committed to God, so devoted to God, that they were willing to kill people who had some opposition to God. Paul, the apostle, describes himself with this word in Galatians chapter 1. In Acts chapter 22, he says, I was a zealot. For the law of God. And then he says, I killed Christians. That's an example of what it means to be zealous for something. You go far to do good. That's what Peter is saying. Your life is characterized not just by sometimes, irregularly, infrequently, once in a while, you'll do some good. No, you are zealous for doing what is good. And that will attract hostility. Because in verse 17... He says, you will suffer for doing what is good or doing what is right. You see, in those moments when you are suffering unjustly, you may want to recoil. You may want to pull back and say, okay, I need to take a break from this faithfulness thing. I just need to be a little bit more passive in my commitment to Christ. And you begin to value it. Is it worth it? Is it really worth it to be physically assaulted 
for the sake of Christ. All you're trying to do is do good. Perhaps you're serving people, giving money, and then you're being assaulted. Well, Peter is trying to incentivize you with what's called reward theology. There is a reward for faithfulness. Jesus talked about it all the time. The other New Testament letters talk about it, and Peter talks about it as well. This is not to say that God is indifferent to your pain. In Psalm 56, verse 8, this is what it says. You have taken account of my wanderings. You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? God's response to the pain in the lives of his children is to observe, collect, record those moments of pain, those tears. Archaeologists have actually found little glasses, little veils that were used to collect tears. So this is just an image of what was practiced back in the ancient times. So God makes this metaphoric statement saying, okay, I am collecting, I'm paying attention to the pain in your life, especially when it has to do for you, because of your faithfulness for my name. See, Peter calls us to remember when persecution comes into your life for the sake of doing what is right. Remember, there is a reward. Stay faithful. Count your blessings. It was Paul who said, all those who desire to live godly will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12. But of course, the natural response is to fear the opposition. And so it takes us to our second appropriate response. Instead of fear, we calm our fears. We calm our fears. In verses 14 and 15, this is what Peter writes. Do not fear their fear and do not be troubled. The reason he repeats the word fear, which sounds really odd in English, right? Do not fear their fear. What does that mean? No, do not fear their threatenings. Their intimidation is a good word. But he he puts those two words back to back in order to say, it's an emphatic statement. Do not be afraid of all of their threats against your life. Do not be troubled. Now, fear is a repeated theme in this book. Eight times it appears in this book. Repeatedly, Peter says, fear God. Respect God in the employment relationship that you have. Make sure that when you obey your employer, you are doing this out of respect, fear, reverence for God. But here, he says, now, you might have a natural tendency to fear the opposition. Don't fear. Don't fall into that trap. In Luke 12, verses 4 and 5, this is what Jesus says. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more than they can do to you. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, fear him. So Jesus bifurcates our fear. Don't fear the human authorities, fear God. That's exactly what Peter does. Don't fear the human authorities in your life, the people who oppose you. Rather, fear God. He redirects our fear to the appropriate object of fear, to the eternal judge, not the temporary adversary. And back in chapter 1, verse 17, this is what Peter says. If you address the Father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct your entire life in fear while you're alive. In other words, fear must characterize our life every single day of our life. But it is fear of God, not fear of man. And then Peter makes it even more emphatic and do not be troubled in verse 14. And he picks a word that isn't very frequent in the New Testament, but it is charged with emotion and instability, and chaos. Just listen to the passages in the New Testament where this word appears, don't be troubled. That's the word, troubled. Listen to the kind of context that this word appears in. In Matthew, five, in Matthew chapter 2, it refers to Herod's and the entire Jerusalem's leadership team, fear, trouble, that Jesus, the new king, was born. And what did Herod do in response? 
he killed all the kids under the age of two. That's how troubled he became. When the disciples saw Jesus walking in water, they were troubled, it says. So again, this supernatural experience. When Zechariah saw the angel in Luke 1, he was troubled. When Mary saw the angel in Luke 1, she was troubled. When the disciples saw the resurrected Christ for the first time, they were troubled. When the disciples heard from Jesus in John 14, I'm going to leave you, they became troubled. There's a catastrophic experience that's happening in their minds. You're going to leave us after three years? We gave up everything for you. And now you're abandoning us? Of course, there would be an emotional response. It's used to refer to Jesus in John chapter 11 when he saw all the people crying over the death of, death of Lazarus and he was troubled. And then in chapter 12, multiple times, it says he was troubled at the thought of his upcoming crucifixion. In Acts, it refers multiple times to the riots in the city when people are preaching the gospel and riots break out. It says the city became troubled. So you can imagine violence and chaos, anarchy. When in Acts chapter 12, Peter is released from prison by the angel. Remember that supernatural miracle? And uh, Herod told the soldiers, okay, find him. They couldn't find him. They became troubled. You know what happened after that? They were all executed because there was a missing prisoner. Their trouble was founded. They knew that execution was upon them because they lost a prisoner. In Acts 15 and Galatians 1 in chapter 5, it talks about spiritual turmoil and distress in the context of trying to understand the true gospel versus the false gospel, the gospel of works versus the gospel of grace. And then in John 5, it refers to active movement of water in a pool when somebody stirs it. So just imagine a pool and somebody jumps in and you've got water splashing everywhere. So now you understand this is the word. Every single instance in the New Testament, it has a very dynamic, aggressive, emotional context. And then Peter takes that word and places it right here. Because it is natural for us to respond to persecution with an emotional response. Panic. Chaos. Not sure exactly where this is going to lead us. You can only imagine what James Coates was thinking after 30 days in prison and solitary confinement. Or just think about all the persecuted Christians around the world today and then through all of human history. How do you overcome this fear? How do you calm your fear? Because Peter says, don't fear. It's a command. So how do you calm it? How do you compose yourself if that were to come upon you? Well, it takes us to our third response. And that is you got to remember who's in charge. Remember who's in charge. In the words of this verse, consecrate your Lord. But sanctify Christ as Lord. Consecrate Christ as Lord. To consecrate something, to sanctify something, means to set it apart. To distinguish from everybody else. To, in the, to set that person above everyone else in your allegiance to him and in your submission to him as the authority. In other words, you come to realization that he is the only Lord of your life. Everybody else in authority around you is there because of his lordship. Romans 13 makes it very clear. Nobody is in authority in this world apart from God placing them in that position. So the superior authority, the superior Lord is Christ. So then you set him apart. You sanctify. You understand that he is the premier one. Colossians 1.18 says it this way. He himself will come to have first place in everything. And in order to help these persecuted Christians, if you remember the history behind the book, who are fleeing for their lives from Rome to modern-day Turkey, in order to encourage them that this Lord that you're about to put full allegiance toward, you're going to fully submit to him, and you're going to recognize him as the sole authority, he actually has the power to help you. 
And so he goes to Isaiah chapter 8. He's done this many times, right? Last week especially, we looked at a lot of Old Testament passages. So he goes back to the Old Testament to encourage them from Isaiah chapter 8. And just listen to the verses. Isaiah 8, beginning in verse 12. This is what Isaiah says to King Ahaz. And you are not to fear what they fear. So Peter takes that phrase in verse 14 as a quote directly from this verse in the Greek language. So do not fear their fear or be in dread of it or be troubled. It is the Lord of hosts whom you are to regard as holy. Again, that phrase comes from Isaiah chapter 8. He shall be your fear. That appears a little bit later in that passage. He shall be your dread. You see, Peter, uh, Isaiah says to Ahaz, in the moment when he was being tempted to align himself with foreign nations for protection against Israel and Syria, who had just created an alliance against Jerusalem and Judah. You remember there was a civil war after Solomon died. Rehoboam split the kingdom. And now we had Israel fighting Judah for the next couple hundred years. And so in that moment, Ahaz, who was the king of Judah, was tempted to connect himself, to ally himself with secular nations. And Isaiah shows up and says, don't do that. Rather, fear God. So the idea is this. If God was able to protect Jerusalem and the nation of Judah against an unholy alliance, the Syrians and then later the Assyrians, God can certainly protect you as an individual. It's the argument from the greater to the lesser. That's why Peter goes back to Isaiah chapter 8. Because if you believe that God did what he did, all those miracles in the Old Testament, you remember the, one of the greatest miracles? When one angel killed 180,000 Assyrians, remember that story? In Isaiah chapter 38 and 39. So if God could do that, don't you think God can protect you as an individual? That's the argument here to encourage these persecuted Christians to remain faithful, even in the face of opposition, he says, remember who is Lord. Because in that moment, we forget that God is still on his throne. We, we see the authority in front of us and we begin to tremble. We begin to preview the implications of the decisions. I'm going to lose my home. I'm going to lose my job. I may never see my family again. I may be beheaded. I may be executed in a severe and violent way. You begin to fast forward where this could end. And Peter says, hey, who is Lord? Who's on the throne? Who's in charge? Set him apart above all other authorities. Just like Isaiah 6. And you do that where? Verse 15, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Not just externally, not just for show, in your hearts. The implication is sincerity and totality. Because in the Jewish mind, the heart represented the entire being, all of who you were. Just listen to Proverbs 4.23. Proverbs 4.23. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. That's the idea. Your heart controls all of life. So if you sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, then your entire life will reflect that level of sanctification, that level of separation and identification that Jesus Christ is the superior one. He is Lord. But you have to understand this. From the beginning of Christianity in the New Testament and beyond, the question of who is Lord always stood at the forefront of all confessions. It was always about who is Lord. Just listen to Romans 10.9. Many of you have memorized this verse. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what? You'll be saved. In other words, part of salvation is recognizing that Jesus is Lord. Listen to 1 Corinthians 12.3. 1 Corinthians 12.3, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is to be cursed. In other words, nobody can 
curse Jesus if the spirit of God resides in that individual. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So the identifying mark of the residing power of the Holy Spirit in your life is the ability to confess Jesus as Lord, not just with your mouth, but with your life. So that's why our church, and especially our pastor since 1988, when he wrote that book, The Gospel According to Jesus, has emphasized when you get saved, you're not just only recognizing Jesus as your Savior from hell and sin and judgment. Rather, you're recognizing him as Lord of your life. It comes as a package. And so if you confess Jesus as Lord, it's because the Holy Spirit gave you the power to be able to confess that and then live that out. Colossians 2.6, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, now walk in it. Walk in that confession. So whether it's the New Testament evidence stressing the Lordship of Christ or early church history, from the beginning of the first century when persecution began against the first Christians, the question of who is Lord was constantly put at the forefront. At the end of the first century and then going all the way into the third century before Constantine uh, made an edict of tolerance in 323 AD, which allowed Christians to be recognized as a official religion. So between the first century and then 323, you had persecution of Christians, severe persecution of Christians, localized, oftentimes, sometimes empire-wide. But this was the question that was being asked often. Offer incense to the emperor, deny Jesus as Lord, and confess the emperor's Lord. And some Christians did that. They offered incense to the emperor, they denied Jesus as Lord, and confessed the emperor's Lord. Some didn't. And those who didn't were executed. We have letters from the beginning of the second century. 121 is the earliest that exists that talks about this reality. But then in the middle of the third century, in the 250s, there was a huge imposition from the emperor in this direction. Emperor Decius decided to make this empire wide. And so there are 46 different affidavits that have been found in, on papyri, that confess the emperor as Lord, and then you sign it, and then a witness signs it. That was the practice. And at the same time, we have letters coming from local police with Christians' names for, uh, approving their arrest. The conclusion is that they weren't willing to do so, they were arrested. Polycarp died because of this. One of the more famous martyrs. You guys, the question of who is Lord was always at the forefront or at the center of the Christian faith. And so what Peter's doing here isn't something novel. He says, are you confessing Jesus as Lord in your heart, in your life? Because if you are, it will help you when you're being persecuted. That's why our church had that confession back in August of last year. Jesus is the Lord of the church, not Caesar. It goes back to this early first Christian history. And true Christians always confess Jesus as Lord, not the emperor, not the king is the ultimate authority of your life. So how do you calm your fears? You consecrate, you sanctify, you identify, you recognize, you establish Jesus Christ as the sole authority of your life. And that will calm your fears. But then you do so practically with the fourth, resp fourth response. And that is you communicate your hope. You communicate your hope. So you have recognized Jesus as Lord, and now you have a message to communicate, right? You believe it, you believe the gospel, and so now you speak it. And so he says in verse 15, right in the middle, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So Peter now says, the way you demonstrate that Jesus Christ is Lord is by being faithful to the gospel message. Because that communication is what provokes hostility. 
So if you're willing to be faithful in the face of hostility, then you'll be willing to be faithful to proclaim the gospel that provokes hostility. That's the meaning of this verse. And he organizes it in this way. It's actually perfect in English. Always ready. It's at the very forefront of that phrase. In other words, it is the important message. This is what's being stressed. You are always ready to make a defense for the hope that's within you. One commentator said it this way. Peter sees his readers as being on trial every day as they live for Christ in a pagan society. So you give an account, you give a defense, right? The word here in English is defense. Apologia, you heard of the word apologetics. It comes from this verse. The idea of apologetics, defending your faith. But Peter isn't saying defend all of Christian theology, the Trinity, the hypostatic union, Come up with all the the philosophical arguments for the existence of God. No, what does it say? Defend your hope. You have a hope that supersedes the material world, that you will be with Christ in heaven. That is what you defend. You're always ready. In other words, you're always under surveillance. Do you live your life assuming that somebody is always watching your life? Just this week, a couple of days ago, I was walking in our neighborhood, and I don't live in Santa Clarita where 90% of the Grace Church people live. I live a little bit a different direction. And I'm walking in my neighborhood, and somebody stops me and says, aren't you Pastor Mark from Grace Community? I'm like, yeah, I am. I was embarrassed for that. I've never seen this person in my life. I had no idea that she lived on the same street as I do. She with her unbelieving husband. A couple years ago, I was in Alhambra. You guys know where Alhambra is? Okay, some of you. There you go. I see some nods. Uh, it's about 30 minutes, 30 miles east, southeast from here. I'm in Home Depot because my aunt and uncle live there, so I stopped by to get some stuff. And somebody in line says, hey, Mark, I'm from Grace Church. You never know who's watching and where they're watching, Right? Now, those are Christian examples, but guess what? If you've professed to be a Christian at work, at school, in your neighborhood, people are watching. And they want to see if your life matches up with your profession. That's what Peter is saying. You're always ready to make a defense for the hope that's within you. You are always under surveillance. Do you recognize that? And then do you live your life that way? And are you always prepared to tell people, this is my hope for the resurrection, for eternal life? It's the hope that was introduced in the very beginning of this letter. It's a living hope in chapter 1, verse 3, it says. It's a hope that's fixed on the return of Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verse 13. It's a hope that's grounded in God in chapter 1, verse 17. And it motivates and stimulates and buttresses our faith in chapter 1, verse 21. You see, this hope causes you to respond in the appropriate way. But this hope isn't something you put on and put off. It's not something that's temporary. Where is this hope? Verse 15. It's within you. You embody it. It's inside. It's, it's who you are. It's your identity. You can never shed this hope. You can't get rid of it. You're always to be hopeful for the resurrection of eternal life, for the future, the eschatological experience with Christ. That's our reality. And if you have this hope, then your life will demonstrate that. And you will always be ready to make a defense. And you do so with gentleness and fear. Not fear of the person who you're talking to, rather fear of God. That's the consistent message in 1 Peter. Every single time there's a command to fear someone, it's always God. So you fear God and that prompts you to be ready to defend your faith. Well, the way you do that and what results from that is a good conscience. And so you calibrate your conscience in verse 16. Keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which they're slandered, you are being slandered. Those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame, will be put to shame. Now it's all about your conscience, your conscience being clear, being clean. It doesn't accuse you of being unfaithful. It doesn't accuse you of sin. It doesn't accuse you of being a hypocrite. You have a clean 
conscience because you're faithfully proclaiming the message of Christ and you're faithfully, with gentleness, defending it. And you're faithfully doing what is right. And you'll be reviled. You have a good conscience, but those who revile you, those who slander you, will be put to shame. This is in contrast to what's in chapter 2, verse 6. Look at that. You have to see this. Because that's the other place where shame appears in this letter. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will never be put to shame. That's the contrast. You've got the believer being shamed by your good behavior and your faithfulness, put to shame, but then the Christian who set his hope on Christ will never be put to shame. That's the contrast here. There's never going to be an embarrassment. He's not ashamed of us. Hebrews 2 talks about this. Hebrews eleven sixteen 16 says, God is not embarrassed by you. God is not ashamed by you, of your behavior. You know what it's like to be embarrassed by something, to be ashamed of something, right? Everybody has an embarrassing story, don't we? Happens to all of us. And it's a good story to share in a little party, right? Like a little house party. So at some point, somebody will ask, tell me your embarrassing story. It happens to all of us. I remember being interviewed for a job in accounting straight out of undergrad and going to dinner. It's a big firm, and so they treat you nice. And so they took us to a dinner. And um, I wasn't really familiar with nice restaurants in LA at that point. And so I heard one place, and so I ended up going to this, I'll confess, a bar. Okay, It was a bar. I didn't drink, I promise you. But I got sitting there at a bar, and it's like 30 minutes later than what I was supposed to be. I was like, man, this is weird. Why would these important people from this big firm be late to dinner? So I asked the bartender, I said, hey, is there a restaurant that sounds kind of like this? He's like, yeah, there is. It's just down the street. It's an actual steakhouse, not a bar. So I'm half an hour late to the place, and they're sitting there waiting for me. So we find a talk, and so we meet, greet, meet, and all that stuff. And so one guy's name was Brian Wolf. But there was a TV show at that time whose name, the guy's name was Scott Wolf. And so it just stuck in my head. And the whole night I'm calling this guy, Brian, Scott. And this guy's interviewing me for a job. It was so bad that at the end of the night, we're all by our cars and we're saying goodbye. And I actually call him by the wrong name again. It happens. Thankfully, they hired me. I don't know why, but they hired me. <laughs> Couldn't even remember his name. It happens to all of us. I remember doing my first wedding. This is a warning for you guys if you ask me to officiate your wedding. Somebody did right before, and they're not here right now. So don't tell them the story. First wedding I officiated, okay? It was at the church down in Studio City, the uh, Seventh Heaven Church. Um, And so I'm doing the ceremony. And so I basically get to Genesis chapter 2, which says, For this reason, the man shall leave his father and his mother, and he will cling to his wife. And they'll become one flesh. What I say is, and for this reason, the man will leave his wife and will cling to his father and his mother. (laughs) And everybody did what you just did. Laughed. And then they caught me like, no, do not do that, please. (laughs) We have embarrassing stories to share. I'm sure you're thinking of some in your life. It's shameful. They're worse, right? There are some worse stories than those. But you take that embarrassment and shame and you say, in the Christian life, if I'm faithful, I will never experience that. Shame, embarrassment will never be part of my experience. In 1 John chapter 2, it says, when we look him eye to eye, there is a possibility that we will look away in shame. If your life wasn't lived faithfully, that's what Peter's going after. Your life can be free of shame. If you live faithfully, if you defend your faith with reverence and gentleness, then your conscience is clear. Well, it takes us to our final response in the face of persecution. That is conform to God's will. You need to conform to God's will. Look at verse 17. It is better if God should will it so 
that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. God's will for your life is to do what's right, even if it means persecution. That's the message of that verse. That's God's will for your life. And so you conform your life to God's will. I will do what's right. I will be faithful because that is God's will for my life. And the way Peter wants to get their attention is through alliteration. To just listen to the way I read this in the Greek and listen to the alliteration. The reason that my points are alliterated is because of Peter. It's his fault. Okay. Now, listen to what he wrote here. Theloi, thelema, theu. It's the same first letter, theta, theloi, thelema, thelu. He's trying to alliterate the phrase to get your attention. It says, if the will of God wills. Again, doesn't really make much sense grammatically. The will of God willing. The will of God isn't the person. God wills for you. And so to maximize the impact, he says, let me alliterate this phrase for you. Make sure it stands out. You never forget it. It is God's will for your life, that you always do what's right. Even if it means hostility as the end game. And then in verses 18, 22, which we're going to look at next week, gives us the result of this kind of faithfulness. Back at the end of chapter 2, he says, you need to suffer for the sake of righteousness. And then he says, Jesus suffered and he saved us. Then in verses 18 through 22, he says, for Christ also suffered to bring you to God. Again, he brings Jesus as an example of suffering unjustly. The result of that is our salvation. We'll talk about it next week. But the gospel message is what he's saying, flows from your faithfulness in the face of opposition. If Jesus' faithfulness in the face of opposition, crucifixion, resulted in our salvation, then as a parallel, your faithfulness may also lead others to Christ. We know that from chapter 2, verse 12. They will observe your good deeds. We talked about good. Four times the word good is used in our passage. They will observe your good deeds, and then they will glorify God. They will repent. Because of your good deeds, it will lead people to salvation. That's the gospel message that you have believed if you're a Christian, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. All he's asking of you is to bring your sin to him. And he promises to forgive you of every single sin, past, present, and future. And then he pulls you into his family. He calls you his sibling. God calls you his child. You become part of the family of God. And then you get all the blessings that we've talked about even up to now. The inheritance that's in heaven. Your future eternal life with Christ forever and ever. It's only promised to those who have responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who have confessed their sins. Who have repented and have believed in Christ Jesus as Savior. And if you did so, then your life will show it. And in your faithfulness to spread the gospel, God may use your life even if it means death for you, to bring others into the kingdom. There is a famous saying, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And it's vividly portrayed in the life of Jim Elliot. Many of you have probably read the book, Through the Gates of Splendor. Perhaps you've seen the movie, End of the Spear, or Through the Gates of Splendor. But as a refresher, whose life was lived well, who was killed for his faithfulness to proclaim the gospel. From the time he was a child, Jim Elliot wanted to be a missionary. Whenever missionaries came to their church in Oregon, in Portland, he would always listen and ask him questions about what missionary life was like. And so by the time he became an adult, he quickly committed to missions. And so in 1952, he took an 18-day journey from Portland down to San Pedro here in California, and then off to South America. He went and he spent a couple of years learning Spanish before he would go to Ecuador to the Alca Indians. Alca Indians had not heard the gospel until the 1950s. And so his commitment was to bring the gospel to an unreached people group. He and his friend Nate Saint 
decided to have a plane, and so they flew the plane over this island repeatedly. They would lower a bucket down with various items in order to win the favor of the Alka Indians. And the Alka Indians would come out, get the stuff from the little bucket, and they did this day after day after day. And so they finally felt safe enough to land. The reason that there was a concern about their safety is because any foreigner who stepped foot on the island was killed. There were workers in the oil fields, and at the time, the individuals who got too close to the island were executed, such that the businesses moved offshore completely and would have no contact with the Alka Indians. People knew this, and Jim Elliott was committed to bringing the gospel to them. So they finally, on one of these days, decided to land their plane, and they were hoping that people would come out and greet them. A couple of days passed, and finally, a man with a couple of women came out. And they had a friendly exchange. They gave them some goods, they received them, and then they left back into the island. And they just waited day after day. And then six days passed, and then another group of people began to come out. And so on day six, as they saw a few women kind of moving towards the plane, they came out of the plane and began to walk toward them. And at the same time, they heard loud yelling and cries of a group of men. And as they saw them, they were all ready and armed with spears. At that moment, he, along with the four other missionaries, began to reach for their gun. But then Jim Elliott remembered his commitment. I will not shoot an Alka Indian who hasn't been led to Christ. Most of you know the story that all five missionaries were speared to death that day. It would take days for the news to actually come back to the families, to Elizabeth Elliot, his wife, and the other men's wives. But the news finally came, and there was a gap of a couple years before Elizabeth Elliot and Rachel Saint decided to move their families back to the island. And they got there, and they arrived, and through love and faithful proclamation of the gospel, many Alka Indians were saved. When I was in college, I went to a mission trip in Amsterdam. It was the biggest pastor's conference in the world. And these Alka Indians, a couple dozen of them, who were saved in the 50s, came with the individual who was one of the men throwing the spear at Jim Elliott and Nate Saint. He came with a couple dozen of his fellow Aka Indians with Steve Saint, who was the son of Nate Saint, because the guy who killed his father became his new father. And they were there. About 10 years ago or so, they came here to a shepherd's conference. That same man who killed Nate Saint was here with the plane that was flown, the destroyed plane. They set it up in the plaza. That was 70 years ago. But God used the faithfulness of families, love, good deeds, and the proclamation of the gospel. Some died. Those five men died in order to open a door for the future salvation of the Alka Indians. Hostility is promised to those who live faithfully in this world. The question is for you. Are you willing to be faithful no matter the cost? Even if it means your life. And only God knows if that's your future. Your faithfulness resulting in your martyrdom. That's Peter's message. Don't be afraid. Be faithful. And God will save some through your faithfulness. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so grateful for Peter's message. The clarity of the call to not be afraid of those who may kill the body, but rather to fear the one who has control of our bodies and has control of our souls. I ask that every single person in our group would always live with this paradigm in view. The ultimate Lord is Jesus Christ. He's the superior authority. We bow before him and no one else. And because of that, we are faithful. And 
And I pray for those who might be here who haven't recognized Jesus as Lord, who may know the gospel, who may understand the gospel, who might have lived a decent life, but they haven't fully repented and submitted their lives to you as Savior and Lord. Pray that the Holy Spirit would work in their hearts even now and bring them to a place of recognizing you as Lord and then place them on the journey of faithfulness, living solely for you, recognizing you as Lord in their hearts, and then the entire life demonstrates that. I pray that for all of us, that our entire life would demonstrate that Jesus is Lord of my life. And so as we sing this song, inviting the hostility for our faithfulness, I ask that you would keep us faithful. Amen.